0: Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline. Today, a special episode joined by Dr. Robert Rodriguez and Dr. Michael Waxman. And we've got a, uh, as I mentioned, a special episode today vaccinations in the emergency department. And before we even get started, um, just the disclaimer that the podcast is grant funded. Um, So uh, we'll just put that out there. Project funded in part by a cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, we can actually mention the grant number, traditional spelling of NU50CK00570C6, congratulations if that's your number. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is the agency within Department of Health and Human Services. The contents of this resource center do not necessarily represent the policies of CDC or HHS. It should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government. So. With all of that done, let's ju- let's dive right in, um, and we're chatting about the idea of vaccinations in the emergency department. And we know that the emergency department has become uh, ground zero, the the central, the hub of our healthcare system in terms of not only um, acute care episodes and stabilization and evaluation, but also a catchment point or a safety net for a significant amount uh, of our population, especially those that are higher risk, minority populations, those that are underrepresented in terms of our healthcare system, and what are the opportunities for us as emergency departments, which are across the country, to better serve these patients and improve their wellness and uh, prevention of disease. So, gentlemen, first and foremost, I'm going to start off with you, Dr. Waxman. Uh, Give us a little background on yourself, and we'll roll from there. Sure.
1: Uh, So my name is Mike Waxman. Uh, It's important for me to state because of uh, some technical stuff, I have no financial conflicts regarding this issue. Um, So I'm research director and associate professor at Albany Medical College, and I work in the field of emergency department-based preventive interventions. I've been doing that for a while. And then more recently during COVID in the field of ED-based vaccinations.
2: And I'm Rob Rodriguez. I am a professor of emergency medicine with UCSF. I'm the vice chair of research. In terms of disclosures, I have grant funding from NIAID uh, and Pfizer to look at um, vaccine delivery in the emergency department and address vaccine hesitancy. And I'm in the space. I've been in the space for a long time. Um, I uh, my very first research publication in Annals of Emergency Medicine. I, I don't want to say how many years ago because I'll date myself, but was uh, in uh, uh, the '90s and was on uh, vaccination, in, influenza, and pneumococcal vaccinations in the merge department uh for seniors basically and uh yeah and so i started in that space um i now uh kind of re-entered that vaccination space during the covid pandemic and have uh done done a lot of uh Uh, work in in that regard.
0: And I do believe the, you know, COVID really did kind of boost a lot of these. I mean, we were already thinking about it anyway, but COVID did boost quite a bit of it just because of the access point that remained open, that remained um, a a central gathering place after the initial hesitancy. And, you know, even as one of your slides mentions, the emergency medicine sits at the intersection of medicine and public health, addressing the needs of the community. Um, So let's talk about that, and why the emergency department um, really is really is an ideal, potential ideal setting for the implementation uh, or as the safety net with these public health preventive measures? Mike, we'll start with you. Sure.
1: Well, you know, um, I'll get to uh, one of the slides that Rob had shown earlier, which talked about this idea that people without primary care care um, have this double whammy of not having primary care and a little bit more vaccine hesitancy. And uh, so there's this cohort of folks who are not really trusting or not accessing traditional healthcare locations and really kind of show up in the emergency department. They're kind of, and so as we've talked a lot about these vulnerable populations or uh, folks who aren't able to get Healthcare or preventive services at other locations—they're really a fantastic uh, kind of audience for us to try to reach. And in, even if we can try to just uh, get the margins of of that cohort, um, is super important. I think Rob will talk about some other cohorts as well. Um, uh, for th- those who—well, um, uh, I'll let Rob talk about some other cohorts too. But um, so you know, it, it really kind of makes sense in terms of who the emergency department sees and what our role can be for those people.
2: Yeah, Mike. So um, I I completely agree. And I want to emphasize two points. The first is that we are we're not uh, advocating for turning emergency departments into primary care, uh, you know, central primary care centers, we're not, you know, the ED has to ha- maintain its current function of d- delivery of acute care, emergency care, and, and all of that, we're, uh, and we're not advocating that ED suddenly be transformed into, you know, the place where all primary care is delivered, all vaccines and preventive care. What we're talking about, is uh capturing uh or offering services to people when they are there for other reasons and there is a uh as mike indicated there's a distinct population whose only ha- healthcare access occurs in emergency departments and in our work we found that it's as much as uh, about 20% of the U.S. population, that they, uh, the only place that they can go to get health care is the ED, and that includes large populations of, uh, you know, as you said, minority populations, um, the unhoused and marginally housed populations, immigrants, and uh, uninsured patients. Um, they you know, they can't like simply walk into a uh, doctor's office and, and make an appointment. They don't have access to online, you know, many of them don't have access to online scheduling. But uh, so we're talking about helping that group of, of uh, that ED population, offering them preventive healthcare services, meeting them where they are.
0: Yeah, I think that's it, exactly it, meeting them where they are. And this isn't our first foray into the public health realm. I mean, we do it as every day in emergency medicine, whether it's the fall prevention, whether it's looking at some of the substance use disorders. I think one of the biggest ones was that push, you know, 15, 20 years ago and continued push on screening for HIV within the emergency department, uh, especially for high risk populations, um, and being able to screen that and catch it earlier before it progresses to. Um, to actually more of the immunodeficiency side of it with the low CD4 counts. Uh, we look at it in terms of our substance abuse, looking at things such as hepatitis C uh, and hepatitis B. You know, this is the emergency department in certain situations, in certain populations. It is an ideal place to exercise some of these opportunities. Um, you know, even look at the basic one that I used last night, our tetanus vaccination updates. Um, you know, rabies after dog bites or bad exposures around here. Uh, and all of those types of things. Uh, So let's dive into um, some of those ideas of not only potentially looking at vaccinations during outbreaks, like when we just recently had that significant round of hepatitis A um, outbreaks across the country with Kentucky being where I live, one of the uh, ground zeros of that outbreak, as well as some of the other outbreaks such as COVID that we just saw. And Rob, I'll start with you on this one.
2: Yeah, I think that um, certainly uh in terms of outbreaks the ed is a uh prime location to to address deficiencies in the healthcare system and um we all uh you know experienced firsthand you know the the covid really uh just Sparked uh, a movement in in EDs across the country, a movement toward pr- providing vaccines. We were really the only game in town for acute care, but we also uh, became a, a prime location for institution of of preventive care measures. And so, you know, the COVID pandemic really revived. Um, a, a lot of vaccine programs, and and you uh, you know there there are other issues like the monkeypox um, or mpox, excuse me, um, outbreak that we are have responded to as well, and and a lot of uh, uh a lot of times the ED can serve as a, a canary in the coal mine for some of these outbreaks, and and in terms of surveillance for, for new emerging diseases. So we all uh, are aware again about uh, how EDs picked up some of the hepatitis um, A uh, in, uh, outbreaks and EDs, ED surveillance helped um, monitor other other outbreaks as well.
1: That's right. That was well said, Rob. Um, First, I'd like to just go back. You mentioned, Ryan, this concept of uh, HIV screening. Rob and I were both worked in that field before we were working on COVID vaccination. And um, what we found was that we were able to do the HIV screening. And by the way, we didn't break the bank. We didn't have like droves of people come in primarily just for HIV screening. And uh, there wasn't like this like um, epidemic of people uh, just coming in for an HIV test or and it didn't break the bank. And in fact, it just kind of helped people and prevented, the, as you said, this like severe immune deficiency uh, for people coming in later on in the day. And like in New York state, in our region in Albany right now, we really have uh, the, the state of New York has curbed the HIV epidemic to a large, large extent to the point where like the residents see someone with end-stage HIV uh, with like a, a pneumocystis pneumonia, and it's like a big to do. Whereas I think the three people on this podcast probably saw that all the time when we did our residency training. So, um, and and we didn't break the bank with this, and we didn't we didn't break the bank with um, the COVID vaccination. The the shops that did it either there weren't like droves of people coming in with it. It was really just the folks who did need it and weren't able to access it at other sites, etc. So I just wanted to kind of get that thought out of the way first. Um, In terms of, and then uh, you spoke about um, uh, the, the, I just wanted to add to what Rob had just said. Um, This intersection of emergency departments and public health, I, I completely agree with everything that's just said. And I would just say one thing that I've learned over the years, and especially in this space of vaccination is the importance of working with the local public health workers. I mean, they're like fantastic people who are just out there trying to do the best for the community. And there's this like real intimate intersection, as you guys alluded to, between the emergency department, both for surveillance and also for treatment. So we talk about COVID testing and stuff like that, which happened first. And then there was this uh, kind of um, uh, uh, exciting opportunity to not only do the surveillance portion, well, first we we all know that we did the uh acute treatment of COVID, that was way back. Um, but then uh but then also kind of participate in the prevention and the community cure as well. And that that was kind of exciting. So there's this real intimate uh link between public health workers and emergency physicians. That's something that's been a real enjoyable part of my job over the past decades.
0: And I do you feel like that's it's, it's- what we've done so far has not been, as you mentioned, as both of you mentioned, haven't been intrusive into our practice settings. You know, it is a what we do plus, um, you know, that's already in, already in there. You know, if you've got somebody comes in that's higher risk, um, you know, let's just use opioid use disorder, throwing in the hepatitis panel to, to get that risk for hepatitis B and C. I mean, it's public health prevention. You saw the HIV outbreak. Uh, in southern Indiana uh, several years ago associated with the opioid uh, epidemic. And the public health efforts, including the emergency departments, were used for that screening and to be able to, as well as other risk mitigation processes, to decrease that risk. So we've kind of mentioned, I'm going to kind of circle back and double down on the idea of potentially the vaccinations as the PEP, as prevention, as well as for mitigation uh, a slowdown of outbreaks. So let's talk about that a little bit. The role of the emergency department with regard to um, with regard to these separate three separate opportunities of the use of vaccinations in the emergency department. Michael start with you.
1: So when we kind of think about this uh, Rob and I when we put together a talk on this, we conceptualize this in terms of three uh, spheres or facets that the emergency department could participate in. The first is pep, and we do that as you said. Tetanus being kind of just standard of care now. I mean, if anyone didn't give a tetanus shot after a wound that uh, that someone was uh, unvaccinated for more than a decade, it, it would be kind of like not standard of care, probably. Sometimes I don't know if you guys see this in our trauma bay. It's like we give the tetanus shot before we like uh, you know uh, uh, tie a tourniquet or something like that. Not that we tie a lot of tourniquets, but maybe splint a, a splint an extremity.
0: Well, you would you would definitely fail out of ABIM general if you did if you forgot that that was one of yes. the things you had to do. It's, <laughs> it's put them on the monitor, PPE, tetanus shot. It's
1: funny, yeah, right. It's funny because I don't, I'm a I like the vaccines, but that's maybe I don't know. I'm kind of worried about the open fracture. Anyway, next <laughs> uh, is so we see that with rabies, and as you said, so the the post exposure prophylaxis and the occupational non occupational. Uh, bloodborne pathogen exposures, um, which are uh, uh, super important and we all deal with all the time. The next would be uh, in the setting of outbreaks, and we spoke about that a little bit. Uh, the ones that come to mind acutely are the HI, um, hepatitis A virus, which we saw in western New York. It sounds like you also saw that in your local area as well. Did you guys vaccinate, Ryan? Uh, or did you just kind of um, do some case finding?
0: Oh, We actually did. Uh, of course, we had a huge outbreak uh, that came through here, and we did not only did we do the diagnostics and management, but we did offer um, offer the vaccines as well. In fact, I got my vaccine through the hospital itself. Uh, so you know, halfway through a shift, like, hey, we've got it. Come on down and you know, just go by there and just fast pass through the pharmacy, and they stab you with a needle on the way through, and then you go back to work.
1: That's a real example of that intimate relationship, right, between uh, the the community and the emergency department. Um, And then, uh, yeah, and then, of course, there was COVID, which was like this pandemic and affected everyone's community, I assume. The third category that we have is this primary prevention, and that's like these routine vaccinations. And Rob was talking about, like, for example, pneumococcal, which we do in the hospital and what he did a long time ago. The other things are the seasonal uh, primary prevention uh, vaccinations, which include things like influenza. Now, COVID is turning into that as well. Um, And then there's uh, maybe this up-and-coming one that we're thinking about for adolescents who also seem to be like this one group that's really hard to reach for preventative services. And uh, so HPV, which I think still is yet to be explored thoroughly and, and rolled out thoroughly. Rob, did
2: I did I get that right, or you have any other thoughts? Yeah, no, you you hit on all the great points, and and I think that the point that uh, COVID has kind of uh, crossed over from that outbreak uh, category, out, outbreak uh, delivery category, to what it's going to be now, and and in the future, it's going to be um, with regard to booster vaccines, it's going to be. You know, uh, probably an annual event, an annual type vaccine. So, uh, COVID has certainly crossed over in that regard. Um, I think that uh, what we're talking about in terms of those uh, those uh, you know regular series vaccines. Let, let's say you're talking about uh, um, let's say pneumovax for for an elderly uh, an elderly person. Um, we we uh you know there are various models of, of doing that and, and there you can um you can begin it all starts with identifying people who are um who have missed that vaccine or who have not received that vaccine. And then whether you can deliver it there or uh deliver it there in the ED, um or just provide messaging to to the patient that they need that vaccine is is uh is something that you need to work out in your in your individual department
0: and the education is just as much of the importance as well uh, as you mentioned kind of getting to it even if it isn't provided physically in the department you know access to follow-up access for a plan to get an education as to why in certain populations or uh, in related populations that it is important um, so let's talk about you know we've every uh, every yin and a yang uh, you know we've talked about the opportunities for the emergency department, but of course there's going to be challenges as well with these vaccination programs. You know I, need, I know a lot of our departments now are dealing uh, with significant boarding wait times, nursing s- staffing. Um, so there's always challenges in implementing implementing these programs, but also the growing number of asks for the healthcare system, especially with the emergency department, with very little of the uh, workups being done in the outpatient setting anymore, very very frequently just getting sent into the emergency department to quote get it quicker. Um, so let's talk about some of the, uh, some of the challenges that we may face or that can be expected with the implementation of further vaccination programs in the ED, Rob.
2: Yeah, so there are a number of challenges. Um, and, I, and there are a lot of solutions to these uh, to these challenges. The first challenge I'd say that which we're trying to address in this conference series is the challenge of perception, Uh, perception that of perception of vaccination in the ED in terms of the overall system in terms of ED providers. Uh, We're trying to convey the notion that um, this is part of what we should be doing and that it should not be. Uh, we need to change the perceptions um, both nationally and locally in your individual emergency departments that um that e- that the perceptions about vaccines and such that we will be able to to offer them um, when uh, in certain cases so I think there's a challenge of perception there are uh, pragmatic challenges in terms of costs and uh, acquisition of vaccines and uh, and uh, delivery of vaccines like when and where should you when and where should you deliver them. Uh, but uh, you know, all of these challenges can be met step by step. you know, it begins with knowing your your patient population, your ED population, and knowing what's available uh, in the community for that population. So for example, if you're if you have a, a needy population that is lacking in, um, let's say, COVID vaccines or influenza vaccines, um, you identify that as a potential target. But then you also look at, at your community health centers, your, your um, local public health agencies and collaborate with them to see if they, if those can be offered um, in other settings and whether you can uh, uh, collaborate in the delivery of those, those vaccines. So it's really a tailored approach uh, to various challenges And it all really begins with uh,
1: perceptions. Great. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I I don't have too much to add for that, uh, to that, Rob. Um, You know, I think what we see in a lot of emergency department preventive interventions is this concept of competing priorities. The, as you mentioned, Ryan, the um, understaffing long boarding weights, et cetera, something that we all deal with all the time. How are we gonna put this on top of it? And then there's also, as we were saying earlier, um, you know, there might be an acute need to do more uh, screening, maybe SBIRT for opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder, et cetera. And so that might kind of like take a priority over the vaccination. Nevertheless, the vaccinations is a nice way for emergency departments to participate in the health of their communities And especially to be ready when there is either a national or local outbreak to kind of have those systems in place uh, uh, when that's the case as well. Um, You know, just like you can chew gum and uh, walk at the same time. And so that's kind of maybe the take home message.
2: Yeah, I I would add to that, that, you know, this issue of boarding, um, it actually, in some ways, has, in, in our studies, in, a, in our trials, has uh, given us a little bit of a greater opportunity, in fact. Uh-huh. In other words, there, there are some times when patients are uh, boarding in, in, in the ED for hours and hours, and, um, you know, and we... Can uh, address the, their preventive care
0: needs during the during those long boarding times as well. Not to mention the fact that uh, you know some of the new criteria for our documentation does uh, does weigh heavily on uh, some of those public health uh, uh, social determinants of health and preventive measures. Um, so it's not like it's something now that gets uh, that that is you know completely one sided just because it's not a. Twenty-seven thousand point review systems. Now, one of the one of the larger areas of you all of the webinar that you did uh, was on this toolkit, uh, on this ASAP toolkit, and uh, some of the consensus from that. So let's just talk about some of the uh, ASAP toolkit. Uh, I think focused on more the pediatric side, but uh, the opportunities there, kind of the take-home messages. Uh, that we have from that toolkit itself. And I think, think, Mike, I'm starting with you this time.
1: Um, Yeah, we met. um, So ASAP went to a collaboration, really a a grant that was funded by CDC to work on this particular issue. And we had uh, five meetings with seven members of experts in the field, including pediatric vaccination, emergency department preventive intervention, pediatric emergency medicine, et cetera. And we came up with a few kind of consensus thoughts, and the toolkit will be uh, posted on the ASAP website within a week, within a a few weeks. And um, maybe I'll just mention a couple of them. Like for example, the this working group we called it the this uh, uh, pediatric emergency department vaccination working group strongly supports the administration of vaccinations for post-exposure prophylaxis, which makes sense. Uh, The working group supports the identification of children who are under vaccinated for seasonal vaccination and delivery in the emergency department when feasible. So uh, we, we all kind of came to a consensus that it was important to identify children or anyone who is under vaccination, who is under vaccinated for the routine childhood vaccinations. However, we did also realize that these routine childhood vaccinations can be very tricky to kind of do the catch-up, the primary series, uh, have all the logistics involved with that because there's many of them, and uh, report it out, etc. So uh, but it's nevertheless important to kind of identify these folks and refer them when possible, kind of identify the barriers and refer when possible. And then there's a lot of room to move with the typical seasonal vaccinations, including COVID and uh, influenza. So that might be a nice area, especially in conjunction with the local health departments where emergency departments can kind of, uh, there's room to move where they, they most don't necessarily do that right now. But there's certainly enough models set up uh, that, that that is um, a, a feasible thing to do and sustainable. Um, and then uh, there, there's some there's maybe some new ones that we start to think about. HPV is one that's currently being explored. And then uh RSV, I don't know if you've heard, but that's right around the corner, even available in some in some small places. Uh and we'll have to see how that rollout looks like uh as as it goes through.
2: Yeah, I I would add that that was great, a great summary, Mike. Um, I would add to that that I think kind of a, a simple way to think about it is uh what vaccines can you deliver in the ED and um what vaccines uh Is it really currently not feasible? So for the vaccines that you can deliver, you you're you're going to want to set up programs of, uh, you know, uh, systems to 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 identify patients who have not been vaccinated and and deliver them. And for the vaccines that you cannot deliver, let's say, you know, the the MMR and, um, you know, Hib vaccines and other other. Uh, childhood vaccines, what you should do is you should identify people who are, or kids who have not been vaccinated, and then just message them, uh, provide messages, um, uh, smart phrases and and different messages on discharge or during your actual patient encounter uh, regarding the need to have them get, get those vaccines. And if you know where they can get them, um, uh, direct them to those locations. What,
1: Rob, let me add on to that. Uh, as you know quite well, one of the things that I found in my research, and uh, as, I, as I know you did as well, um, it's not necessarily an all or nothing thing. Now, the ultimate outcome is vaccination rates. And it would be great to kind of go from, uh, you know, X vaccination rate to like 100% vaccinated. But we're not necessarily uh, uh uh we don't necessarily need that on every occasion. And to just kind of uh to take the to take an analogy of the stages of change, to go from like kind of pre-contemplative to contemplative or to action-oriented, or to go from um s- s- someone who's uh n- not necessarily um uh t- t- who's not vaccinated at all, and then to get them in m- maybe just uh, like, a, like a very good outcome.
0: And we're looking at that the aspect now of, of with children. I was just kind of scrolling in here because I actually just saw it. There was just a news report that came out. Uh, I think I saw it this morning, actually, uh, that one in six children is, is not fully vaccinated. And Mike, you talked about uh, in the U.S., and you talked about, um, yeah, one in six toddlers aren't getting all-needed vaccinations. Um, that was out actually uh, yesterday. And... You know from you talked about the idea of all three of us when we would see hiv or aids it was just something we saw we we're used to it here's what you're going to see potentially at this cd4 count and whatnot you know now for most of us it's the same thing with you know a fever come to find out zero vaccinations i think like, oh crap this is the 1800s what kind of excitement are we de- you know are we dealing with potentially dangerous things because typically this age group doesn't have any real significant risks. You know, 99.999% of these disease processes, we've eradicated the dangerous ones, and they're relatively mild self-limiting. And now we have the potential of the entire menu of dangerous disease processes out there. And one of the things in consideration, there is that false narrative idea about it, but there is significant vaccine... Hesitancy out there potentially, some of it well earned with the US's history of sometimes making really bad decisions, especially regarding research. And so there is justified hesitancy for some of the uh, vaccinations out there. Um, and so it's not just necessarily about putting in the uh, infrastructure within your emergency department, sometimes it is education and dealing with that hesitancy and that potential, potential opportunity to bridge that gap uh, where we can actually significantly improve uh, prevention and patient outcomes. As we kind of wrap up today, let's talk about some of the opportunities that we have to address in the emergency department. Some of that longstanding, even potentially generational vaccine hesitancy that we may see with our patients, Rob. Yeah. Thanks. So
2: this is a huge issue. And, and, um, we've done a lot of work with national studies looking at vaccine hesitancy with regard to COVID vaccine, influenza vaccines, and booster vaccines. And what we've found are a couple of points. Um, first of all, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. The um, uh, popul- different populations have uh, different levels of vaccine hesitancy. Um, it's also the reasons for vaccine hesitancy are, are also not one size fits all they they uh, vary among different populations and they vary among different vaccines that's a key point to understand so for example uh one of the things that one of the reasons people are vaccine hesitant with regard to flu vaccine is that they be, that they some of them believe that they will get the flu from the flu vaccine, and um, and so you have to when when uh, deriving me- messaging or creating messaging to address that vaccine hesitancy, that influenza vaccine, you have to hit on the point that they cannot get the flu from the flu vaccine. Um, on on a different scale, like a lot of the vaccine hesitancy directed at at COVID vaccines was um, because it was new and they people were concerned about um, about uh, you know experimentation the newness of the vaccine you know what's going to happen in a a few years from now and that you know and that that's a, a, a different issue than you know that's not so prevalent people aren't that worried about the newness of flu vaccines because they've been around for a while. So you have to figure out the particular reasons for vaccine hesitancy um, for that particular vaccine. It's it's all about precision medicine and precision messaging. So the right message for the right vaccine uh, at the right time. And so again you really need to know your population figure out the reasons for vaccine messaging and address those reasons a final thing on on that is um consistently uh the people we interviewed expressed uh that they wanted sincerity and they wanted uh they kept using the word truth in their responses to 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 what would make them uh, accept vaccines. So um, we are huge proponents of listening to, to patients, um, listening to the reasons for uh, being vaccine hesitancy, for being ha- vaccine hesitant, excuse me, for respecting those reasons, um, not, uh, you know, avoid, really need to avoid dismissal and preachiness. And then uh, deliver um, facts in a uh, sincere, truthful manner, manner. So in our messages, we all um, we all express that uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, had the COVID vaccine, our families have had the COVID vaccine, if that's indeed true, and it's true for my family. Um, and and we recommend them, uh, the vaccines
1: for them. Yeah, that was well stated. Um, you, I, I would just double down on all of that. It's very, what we found in our research and, and in the prior vaccine uh, literature, it's important not to have the patient dig in their heels. You want to meet them where they're at and then kind of nudge them in one direction in a respectful, truthful way, just like Rob said. And so when addressing vaccine hesitancy, to keep those exact principles in mind uh, always seems to be the right thing to do.
0: And you know, it's, it's that key of not the bully pulpit, you know, that's a lot, a lot of people are used to um, of, of that distrust of authority, uh, you know, potentially of, of potentially putting them in a difficult situation. And so I think as physicians, I mean, even looking at some of the tips you have within the talk. You know, talking about some of the basics of it. You know, everything down from uh, when and where and why and and what is preventing and. I mean, for me, tetanus is easy because I just pull up a picture of almost all of our books growing through medical school that has tetanus on the front of it. um, Talking about how if it's a painful enough condition to be the headline for medical school, uh, it's probably something that's worth being avoided. And And I I thought it was very interesting looking at the graphs that you have in the talk with tetanus only having about a ten tetanus vaccine having only about a 10% um, hesitancy rate, whereas uh, the boosters for COVID are up to 60%. And that's what I'm seeing in my community when I'm doing media stuff around here as well, as well as the differences between um, uh, populations, whether it be gender uh, or uh, ethnicity. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with some of the historical factors, access, distrust, and things that may be there. So as we wrap this, let's put a bow on it, Any closing thoughts from each of you as we uh, kind of close up on vaccinations within
1: the emergency department, Mike? Uh, No, you know, as as we progress through the discussion, maybe I was thinking about that um, this could be kind of an exciting way for an emergency department to engage with their community and to kind of troubleshoot everything one after another from the logistics to uh, developing new relationships to the vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, it's fun. That's what being a doctor is, right? Helping your community and helping the people. And so that can be some real fun stuff.
2: Yeah, I would I would finish with we all uh, are can do people. In other words, and and during the pandemic, that was uh, that really uh, flourished our can do nature how we you know we were the key providers during the pandemic there's there's no argument there and i would like to see that um the uh attitude that providing preventive healthcare services like especially like vaccines um carry forward uh, and continue and that we uh, promote these types of programs uh, uh ongoing
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate it. How can folks uh, contact, whether it be email, social media, carrier pigeon, whatever it may be uh, for getting in touch with you if they have any further questions? Rob, I'll start with you on that one. Mine is, uh, I'd
2: love to hear from uh, from people. And my uh, email is robert.rodriguez at with a Z at ucsf.edu. And I'd love to hear from people, and we're always looking for collaborators.
1: Ditto. uh, Exactly. And so my email is waxmanm at amc.edu. Waxmanm at amc.edu. We're also going to have uh, very soon this COVID vaccine toolkit, if I might make a pitch, uh, which will be up on the ASAP, not COVID vaccine, pediatric emergency department vaccination toolkit, which will be up on the ASAP. Uh, website within a few weeks. Um, it, that was a real pleasure to talk to you, Ryan and Rob.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate it. Dr. Michael Waxman and Dr. Robert Rodriguez, and I called them Mike and Rob throughout, per their request. So not just uh, not just uh, wiping out their uh, credentials and their qualifications for being here. Uh, again, this this project was uh, funded in part of a grant and cooperative agreement with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. We'll put the grant number inside the show notes as well. As for me, you can contact me at rstanton at ASEP.org. We'll wrap up the close here with uh, if anybody's on the X, formerly known as Twitter, I uh, went through a transition just like Prince did. Um, I'm at Everyday Med, and uh, until next time, uh, with uh, Dr. Waxman and Dr. Re- Rodriguez, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline.
2: Front lines, you're on the sidelines.
1: Cue the music.
2: Bam, bam,
1: bam. Quiet place, yeah. all yeah. alone. Da, da, da.